0: Hello everyone and welcome to another special episode of the From the Hack podcast. My guest today is Brad Gushu, who is fresh off winning his third Tim Hortons Brier in four years, having defeated Brendan Botcher in the 2020 Brier final in Kingston, Ontario last month. The 2006 Olympic gold medalist joined me to discuss the 2020 Brier, but also to discuss other hot topics in the Canadian curling community, including the growing gap between Tier 1 slash slam teams and Tier 2 teams, the idea of a players association, and we also discussed reaching the final of the provincial mixed doubles championship with his 12-year-old daughter, Haley. All that and more on this special episode of the From the Hack podcast. So before we get started, if you've ever wondered how they get those nice graphics into the ice at Grand Slams, at the World Championships, and at Nationals in Canada and the U.S., well, the answer is provided by Jedice, whose in-ice graphics from Easy and Textile logos to the world-famous Jedi's full house product are great ways for clubs to enhance the appearance of their ice and to generate much-needed additional sponsorship revenues. Easy and Textile logos are the industry standard for high-quality logos, and they're a snap to install. Meanwhile, Jedi's customizable full houses are a relatively new way for clubs to grow sponsorship revenues by offering maximum brand recognition to those sponsors. No one can match Jedi's design services, quick turnaround times, and product quality, which is why Jedi's products are valued by major organizations such as Curling Canada, the World Curling Federation, USA Curling, and Sportsnet, who trust Jedi's to provide the products they require for their high-profile events. jedis They bring ice to life. Before we get to my interview with Brad Gushu, I wanted to take a moment to thank uh, curlers Susan O'Connor Carrie Ann McTaggart, Vicki Wright, Lorraine Schneider, and Lee Toner, and any other individual listening to this podcast currently playing a much more important role on a much more important team as frontline workers in the healthcare industry in our current fight against the COVID-19 virus. In order to help these folks do their jobs, I ask you to stay home if at all possible and practice social distancing if you need to leave the house. Oh, no, no. Brad, I've been starting each of these special interviews with a pretty basic question, considering the times we are living in right now. Uh, how are you doing, and how is the family coping with uh, quarantine and with everything that's been going on?
1: Uh, we're, we're doing good. Obviously, uh, being healthy right now is the the biggest priority, and, and you know our family's good. We're we're getting the opportunity to spend a lot more time together, so there's obviously a silver lining in all of this. And I think uh, you know a lot of people need to. You Need to kind of take that the opportunity to spend more time with your family and and uh, and get to know them a little bit better, play some games, do some things that uh, you wouldn't normally get to do is is a good opportunity. So that's kind of how I'm trying to view it and and take that positive aspect of it as opposed to, you know, looking at it from a negative aspect, which is pretty easy to do uh, with everything that's going on around us.
0: To be honest, Brad, when I was in Kingston for the briar, it felt like we were in a bit of a bubble, where we knew that the concern surrounding COVID-19 was increasing each day, and we were being mindful of that inside the arena and at restaurants, etc. But I'm not sure the full magnitude of the virus really hit most people until we were traveling home from the briar. As one of the competitors that week, how aware were you of how big a story the virus was becoming, and how mindful were you during the briar of not shaking hands and not getting too close to other people, etc.?
1: Yeah, that's a it's a great question. Obviously, we were we were aware of it. Uh, You know, we weren't watching the twenty four hour news cycles uh, like probably everybody is at this you know at this time. But we were certainly aware that it was there and that there was a risk. And um, I know our team was we were concerned in trying to keep our distance distance as much as possible. Uh, You know, we didn't think the autograph session would go ahead because obviously that really puts uh, puts you at a lot of risk with shaking you know a couple hundred people's hands. So we just you know, we we thought that was a little odd that that had uh, continued, uh, and then they brought made an announcement that uh, they didn't want the teams to shake hands. Which you know, at that point, we had just finished our autograph session and we got, shook the hands of a couple hundred people. And you know, we're in such tight quarters in the locker room with other teams, and that we just felt, you know what, let's let's continue the the tradition and, and shake hands. And uh, you know, looking back on it now, probably. Uh, with everything that's evolved over the last uh, few weeks, we probably, I think as as players, we certainly wouldn't have done that. I think uh, curling Canada probably wouldn't have asked us to, to do the autograph session knowing, you know, what we know now. So, you know, it's easy to look back in hindsight of how we would have changed things, but certainly when we were there, we, we knew it was there, but there was always that thought, okay, it's not going to be as bad here. Uh, that's kind of, I, I think the best way to describe it. You know, when we had, SARS and H1N1, you, you know, you knew it was there. It was in the news, but it was always far enough away that it was, you know, wasn't going to affect you personally. And, and certainly, this has gone, you know, well, well beyond where those two uh, epidemics went. And uh, you know, now we're, we're we're all stuck at home waiting for this thing to uh, to go away, which unfortunately doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon.
0: So let's move on and uh, talk about what actually happened on the ice at the Briar. You've had a few weeks to reflect on it now, Brad. How proud are you of the way your team came out on top in a field that was that good against teams who played that well during Briar week?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm super prou- proud of our performance. Uh, I think any time you win a Briar, obviously you've got to play well. I think what happened in Kingston was, it was pretty exceptional. And I think part of the reason why the curling was as good as it was was the ice was awesome and when the ice is that good you know you can put the broom down as long as you hit the broom with the right weight you know you're going to make that shot and you know some of those big shots to win games that's what those skips were thinking they just if they put the broom there and in the right well they're going to put the broom in the right spot you know if they just threw it well you know they're going to make that shot and and that's a very common feeling as as a curler and as an athlete knowing that you know if I just execute and do what I need to do I'm going to be able to make the shot and and that's certainly how our team felt all week. We thought the ice was incredible, was super consistent. It allowed you to make every shot out there, and you know you just expected other teams to make those shots. And you know to grind through all week, you, you just knew you, you weren't going to go through without a blemish because um, you know there's just so many shots being made. And uh, to get to grind through and get to the end of the week, get to the playoffs, obviously, was an ac- accomplishment in and of itself. And then to, to get on a run like we did and win three in a row in the playoffs and beat, you know, quality teams like uh, like Jay Jacobs, Dunstone, and Botcher, um, you know, we feel pretty fortunate. But, you know, we kind of seen this happening for us as the year progressed. I think, um, you know, last year we certainly had a down year. There's no doubt about that. And, you know, we were able to make playoffs, but we weren't able to come through and, and win any events. Or, you know, we had a couple finals and some smaller events, but, you know, weren't really there. You know, this year we could see ourselves, we were knocking at the door, and, and we felt like we were playing when we had that really good run over a three, four year period and just weren't quite getting the breaks, you know, in the final. We'd have some teams that played really well against us, or we'd have an untimely miss, or whatever it was. And then at our provincials this year, we played incredibly well, and, and uh, you know, we really felt like we were in control of our game and took that momentum into the briar, and, and that continued. And we just felt like we were. We were playing well, and it was going to take someone playing incredibly well to beat us, and and, uh, that's how we felt. And even the games that we lost throughout the week at the Briar, You know, it wasn't that we played poorly. It was really the other teams just played exceptionally well.
0: Now, obviously, Brad, the the necessary response to the virus has turned the sports world upside down, including the cancellation of the World Curling Championship. I have a two-part question here for you. Your team has been to the World Championships at this point twice uh, and won the Worlds in 2017. That said, I'm hoping you can share how you and the team have processed the disappointment of missing out on wearing the Maple Leaf again. And the second part of my question is, uh, what words of wisdom do you have for team Anderson who are missing out on their first opportunity at wearing the maple leaf and representing Canada
1: yeah it's it's a great question and and I think uh, you know the two situations are completely different obviously with our team you know in in Mark, in my case uh, you know we've been to the Olympics and then all four of us have played in the world Juniors, years and obviously all four of us have had the opportunity to play in a couple world championships as well and, and to win one so you know while it's super disappointing not to get that opportunity, and, and I hope something happens in the fall. I'm not too optimistic, but I certainly hope something happens. Um, you know, it, it's, I, I really feel even worse for, for Carrie and, and, and her team. You know, they haven't had the opportunity. I know Shannon was there with uh, Jennifer Jones, but certainly Val and, and, uh, and Carrie and, you know, the, the whole team really, it just, they're not going to get that opportunity, and, and you feel like you kind of get a little bit cheated, but, you know, they understand the situation as well as we do, and, you know, people's lives are at stake. Um, so we certainly understand and appreciate the decision, uh, and, and you know, we're not questioning this decision by any means. But still, you know, no different than someone, uh, you know, families out there that have had to reschedule Vacations, or or you know, birthday parties, or or any kind of activity that uh, you know you may have been saving up for a long time or, or looking forward to, uh, it's still disappointing. Uh, you know, no, no matter what way you shake it, and, and no one, you know, right now we, we have our health and, and everything's in great shape. You know, it still feels bad. Um, so. For us, I, I know we have that feeling. I can only imagine that Carrie and, and their team is probably even worse because they haven't had that opportunity, and it's so hard to get to a world championship representing Canada. Uh, it's it's so difficult because there's so many teams, and you know sometimes it's a once in a life, lifetime opportunity, and, and our team has been blessed to to get that opportunity multiple times. But certainly, Carrie and her team right now, this was their first time, and, and uh, you know I feel bad for them, but hopefully you know both our teams and, and anybody really that was affected by this can you know pull some motivation from that and, and you know, try and get back there in the future but you know it, it's just one of those situations where you know we got to be home and, and you got to do the self-distancing thing and, and really you know every one of us out there is, is saving lives by by following the orders of, of health canada and, and the officials around the world so you know curling's a very small portion of that but Having
0: said all that, it, it still kind of sucks. Brad, I want to take you back to the fall of 2016 for a moment. At that point, you were 10 years removed from winning a goal at the Olympics. You just lost in the Briar final. And you were struggling with an injury that forced you to miss a couple of months of action early in the 2016-17 season. In retrospect, if someone had walked up to you that fall and said, don't sweat it, Brad, it's all good. You're going to win three of the next four Briars," What would have been your reaction? <laughs>
1: uh, I wouldn't have believed him because... There's times during that eight months where I was dealing with that injury where I wasn't even sure I'd curl again. Um, you know, we couldn't couldn't find what the, you know, what the problem was or, or how to treat it. And really that, that went on for four or five months until, you know, I finally got some guidance and, and stuck to the plan. And over a couple of weeks I could start to see some improvement, so that gave me some hope. And then really from that point on it was probably three months before I even got onto the ice and when I got on the ice, I was still in a you know a, a fair bit of discomfort and in pain. Um, and if the Briar wasn't in St. John's in in 2017, I wouldn't I wouldn't have played the rest of the year. I would have taken some more time to to get 100% recovered. But the Briar was in St. John's, and I didn't want to miss that. So we. Uh, you know, I decided to come back a little bit early and kind of play through the discomfort and the pain. And and we had a great team around us, um, you know, at the briar that year, we had our massage therapist, our physiotherapist that treated me before and after every game, you know, we were probably an hour, hour and a half before and after each game, making sure that I was either ready to play or recovering from that game to be ready to play for the next. And then that continued on into the world championships. So it was a, it was a grind that season to get through and, I think the fact that I did play through kind of caused that injury to linger, you know, much longer than than what it should. And still, even to this day, it, you know, there's some sometimes that it uh, it gets a little tight on me and, and uh, a little uncomfortable. You know, the pain is is not anywhere near where it was, but certainly there's at times some discomfort. But I've been able to manage it and work around it. But I think if I had the opportunity to recover over that full year, I think I could have got it back where. You know, I could have put it in the rearview mirror, but having the Briar and St. John's, you know, that was, that was a special event for me, and I wanted to be there. And, and uh, you know, to, to pull that one out after how I felt in the fall was, uh, was something I'm pretty proud of.
0: Your decision to play through the pain that season certainly worked out well and provided one of the best moments in Canadian curling history when you made that draw to win the bar final, and the crowd in St. John's went absolutely nuts.
1: Yeah, and, 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 and throughout the week, really, um, you know, any time we made a, a huge shot or certainly a game-winning shot, and I, I had to make a bunch throughout that week, I, I, I think there's probably four or five that I that I had to make on my final shot, and, and those roars each time were were incredible. And uh, certainly the after the last one, I don't remember it all. I just remember is embracing the guys and kind of, you know, celebrating it. But certainly the roar, you know, it continued – for minutes after. I don't know if it had the same intensity as right when that shot was made, but you know, we were we left the the arena I think around one thirty, the final probably ended ten thirty or something like that and and there were still a couple thousand people at the patch waiting for us and people outside trying to get in but it was full. Like it was just it was incredible the the way the the city and the province kinda of got around us, uh and and the country for that matter. I think uh, I think a lot of people wanted to see us finish that one off, and, and uh, to do it and see the the way it was appreciated and, and celebrated after was pretty
0: awesome. One of the points you made in the media scrum uh, following the uh, the 2020 Briar final in Kingston. Was that amongst the, uh, the happiest people in the country after your victory was, uh, would be the uh, men's teams in Newfoundland and Labrador, who would now get a chance uh, to compete for uh, a spot in the Briar at Provincials next year, now that your team was uh, qualified for the Briar as Team Canada. Now, there's at least one team, Aaron Sluczynski's team, which is based in Alberta, that has announced it will take advantage of the birthright rule to come and challenge for the Newfoundland Labrador Tankard and a spot in the Briar in your absence. What do you make of the birthright rule, Brad? Uh, it certainly seems to have created unintended loopholes where teams can be created without breaking or stretching any rules, really, and qualify for the Briar in the province where just about none of the team resides. A case in point that this year at the Briar, Brian Cochran's team representing presenting PI, uh, who I believe only had one player that currently resides in PI playing on the team. Yeah, I I
1: I would like to see you know a rewording or revamping of it. I I certainly don't blame someone like Brian Cochran's team or or Aaron Slutzinski's Schl- 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 team. Um, for, for doing what they're doing. I think they're certainly following the rules that are set. And uh, you can't blame those teams. I think if I was in their situation, I'd be doing the exact same thing. And, and uh, hopefully, you know, they can get together and, and with, in consultation with the players uh, really figure out a rule that's going to be fair and makes sense. Because, you know, we, we don't want to be limiting ourselves as Canadians to, you know, pure geography when we're trying to compete against – you know, teams from other countries that are essentially professional athletes and training 100% in the sport of curling with government funding behind them, uh, we don't want to be putting ourselves at a huge disadvantage. So if we can allow ourselves to create better teams, and I think that, that's why the birthright rule came into play is, you know, to give yourself another option of, of a player that might make your team a little bit better, but doesn't necessarily live in the province, but maybe from the province. So. You know, I understood why that was brought into play, and and I didn't disagree with it at the time. I just don't like how it's kind of evolved. And maybe that's just a byproduct that we're going to have to accept to accommodate some of those other situations that, you know, it seems to make more sense.
0: All right, Brad, I got to ask you, were you more nervous in the Breyer final or in the provincial mixed doubles final playing on a team with your 12-year-old daughter, Haley? Yeah,
1: I was much more nervous in the mixed double final with my daughter uh you know i was as a father i was really nervous for her i was also nervous for myself i didn't want to her, let her down and you know everybody that i i kind of talked to about that uh, event and certainly that game where i really felt like i was you know a third of a player you know a third of a father and then a third of a you know sports psychologist slash coach um you know, it was really having a whole lot of different hats on during that game. Obviously, I was trying to trying to make my shots and, and put her in some situations where she'd have some easier shots. And then I was also trying to, you know, coach her and, and give her opportunities to learn in that situation. And then, obviously, trying to help her cope with the situation. There's, uh, you know, she was nervous and wanted to play well as well. And, and uh, you know, I was trying to give her you know, a few skills that I've learned over the years to, to kind of help her through that moment. And, you know, we played so good. It really came down to one shot. Um, she had a draw against four and she let go. I thought it was close. I actually started to sweep it and, and it ended up slide too far and we gave up a seal. I think we we're up two with the hammer at that point. So uh, that was kind of the one, one end that got away with us. We both missed a couple shots early in the end and we're digging to get out of it. And, uh, but I was, at 12 years old having never really played in a a curling competition before and then to get thrown in uh to uh, a mixed doubles against you know a bunch of adults uh, i thought she played so good and and certainly you know many of my most proud moments she made a draw of the forefoot in in a game that you know must win game for us that uh you know still was probably the highlight of my year to be honest even with the briar i was just so proud of her and, and i was so nervous when the rock was coming down and luckily I swept it right. And she, she grew a perfect and, and made it. It was, that was a very cool moment. And, and I think any parent out there knows, you know, what I'm, what I'm talking about. You have so much pride and so much, you know, uh, all those emotions get magnified so much when you're, you know, your offspring is, is involved. And uh, then when you got to throw yourself in there, you still have the normal nerves as well. So, it was it was fun a lot of fun and, and hopefully we get to do it again hopefully we could actually finish it off and, and maybe get to a national championship now in hindsight you know we were kind of talking about it if we had won that game we still wouldn't have been able to go to the uh to the nationals because that was canceled as well so you know not uh not the worst thing that could happen but certainly a great learning experience for her and, and also for me i you know i just uh I had
0: a ton of fun that week, and I was so proud of her. All right, we've got a lot more coming up with Brad Gushu, but first, a quick word from one of our sponsors. <laughs> if you're looking to buy some new curling equipment, look no further than Hardline. They offer premium curling equipment that is a choice of the world's top curlers. Whether it's the U.S. Olympic gold medalist, Team Schuster, or women's Olympic gold medalist, Sweden's Team Hasselberg. Or how about the top Canadian teams, Briar Champs, Team Cooey, Team Gushu, Team Jacobs, Team Carruthers, and world champions, Team Adine and Team Tiernzoni. Hardline's new composite broom, the hybrid helium, is the lightest composite broom on the market and it's perfect for beginners. Hardline also offers a full range of equipment to get you playing your best, including shoes, apparel and the pro slide delivery aid designed by Reed Carruthers. Visit our website at www.hardlinecurling.com and join the revolution.. Oh, So we're going to flip to a whole other subject now, Brad. There's long been talk that players don't have a big enough voice in the world of competitive curling, especially at the elite level where players whose lives are often structured around the sport of curling don't really have a, or, or have a limited say, if you will, when national and international federations and other curling stakeholders make decisions that have a direct impact on those players, their schedule, and their ability to generate income. As a result, I know that there's been a renewed push for a players association. What are your thoughts on that and whether we can expect a players association to take shape in the near future?
1: Yeah, I, I think a players association is 100% necessary. You know, I was in, uh, in- with a small group of players over the last couple of years where we started to informally make that players association and kind of get a little bit of a voice where we can communicate with curling Canada, uh, communicate with the tour that, you know, express some of the issues that we had and some of the changes that we'd like to see made. And in a lot of those discussions, it really came down that we just had to formalize that. And, and uh, you know, we've worked hard over the last couple of years and, and, those processes have started and and are starting to actually get to the finishing point now where we will have an association and you know i think as us as players we we should have more of a voice and and, you know a lot of people that come to watch these events come to watch you know the top 10 teams play and and, you know when we go to these events and and show up and and we don't have any say in, in formatting and rules and you know, off ice activities. You know, I, I don't think that's that's fair, or that's the way it should be. And you know, even situations where you know you could be sponsored by one company, and you show up at an event, and you're forced to wear your own sponsor's competitor, like silly things like that, that don't happen in any other sport. You know, we we got to get rid of that. And and for us to grow the game, and and allow teams to to grow and, and develop, and, and potentially make a living at this, we're you know, they can then compete on a fair ground with a team like an team like an Anna Hasselberg, like some of the, you know, top Asian teams that are, are doing this, you know, essentially full time. You know, the only avenue for us to do that is through sponsorship and, and uh, you know, there isn't enough government funding out there to fund 10 women's teams and 10 men's teams. This is just unrealistic. So for us, the best avenue to do that is through sponsorship. And, you know, we have to have the rights to wear those sponsors at an event like the Briar at the Olympic trials and, and not be asked to wear a competitor sponsor uh, when you're representing, you know, one company for 90% of the year and you show up at another event and and you can't wear that. Uh, it just seems silly. No other sports seems to do that. Our players' association is is going to help us with that. If all the players stand behind and, and we get all the top teams, not not only the top teams, but even you know some up up and coming teams that are really going to be impacted by this in five, ten years, you know, teams on the men's side like a Braden Calvert or or you know Matt Dunstone, um, you know, some of these young guys that in ten, fifteen years' time, when they're in in my position, you know, they're going to be able to benefit from this. So. Um, it's essential that we get it. I know it's close if, if it's not done already, and, and I certainly uh, forward to you know, them progressing the sport in the way it needs to go for the benefit of the players.
0: You just mentioned that a players association would be good for the top men's and women's teams in the country, which brings me to another topic that comes up a lot in curling these days, and that is the growing gap between the Tier 1 or Slam teams, as some people call them, and Tier 2 teams in Canada. As one of the elder statesmen of Canadian curling at this point in your career, does the growing gap between the Tier 1 and Slam teams and the Tier 2 teams in Canada concern you at all? Um, You know what? It really doesn't. Um, It's
1: not a a huge concern for me. I, I think... As a team that, uh, you know, we're, we're going back 20 years ago now, but um, certainly when I got on, it was very much the same way. There was there was seven, eight, nine, ten teams, or, or even back then, that was actually when you had the slammers and the non-slammers. So uh, for us to, to try and get into those slams, it was it was a big jump. And what you end up finding is, is you've got to play a lot, you've got to play well, you got to spend a lot of money. You've got to lose a lot of money, uh, you know, to to be able to accumulate enough points to, to break into the slams. And then when you get into the slams, you're going to have a couple of years where you're kind of out, you're kind of in, until you finally develop enough and, and get a couple of good finishes where you kind of solidify your spot. So really, it just it just takes so much commitment and time to, to break in there. And, you know, you don't see enough, uh, or you certainly do see enough, uh, but you don't see you know, a ton of teams having the ability or, or the time or the money or being in a place in their life where they can commit that amount of time to break in, and that's why you only see, you know, a couple, you know, a couple teams every year that are able to do that. It's a, a fine mix of, of having the right players on your team, guys that can, or, or ladies that can actually play enough, that can actually afford to maybe lose some money if they don't have the sponsorship, uh, that are able to go out and look for sponsorships and, and knock on every door until they get enough money to, to be able to fund a, a good portion of the year. So there's a lot of factors that go in it. I, when I hear some of the Tier 2 teams just say, you know, we don't have a chance, you do. It just it takes a huge amount of commitment. And I look back on our team, you know, back in you know, 2000, 2001, 2002, in that range when we had just come out of juniors, we lost a lot of money. Uh, playing out on tour, you know we didn't have a huge amount of sponsorship uh, we were playing out of Newfoundland. So we still had you know huge flight bills and travel bills that uh, that we had to cover, but we wanted to break into it and, and it really wasn't until I think the players championship in two thousand and five really when we we lost the final and we earned enough points that we were going to be solidly in the slams and from that point on and from that point we you know we've we've been there ever since. But before that, we got to the point where we were in and out, in and out, in and out. Um, but we just – we didn't make any money uh, leading up to that point. And, and it just takes a lot of time, a lot of commitment. And And I think they're the teams that have been able to break through and do that, um, you know, and Matt Dunstone, uh, you know, Botcher even a couple of years ago, if, if you look at what he did when he first came out, you know, he had a kind of one good year where he you know, surprised everybody but then had a really – you know, a, a couple of years where – you know they were borderline in the slams, and then finally got Darren Molding and their team formed, and now they're one of the best in the country. Uh, it's just a natural progression, and and there's not many teams that have the all of the facets. And by that I mean the the number one, the commitment, the personal commitment, but the jobs, the financial, the sponsorship, everything that goes around it to to break through. So you can do it. It just takes a lot, and, and really, if if you're going to do that, you have to do that even when you get into the slams, because it's just not good enough to get into the slams. Like everybody wants to get in, you want to be one of the top five teams in the world, and and the level of commitment that a team like Jacobs or Kubi or Us or Botcher has is and beyond that level. Like that's what we're doing day after day after day. So a team that's say 20th in the world, if they're not willing to do that to get into the top 15 or 16 to make the slams you know they they really don't have
0: much of a chance to then break go further and break into that top five. Many in the Canadian curling community will also argue that one of the main reasons for the growing gap between the Tier 1 teams and the rest of the teams in Canada is that the top 30 players in the country are essentially all playing on the same 7 or 8 teams, both on the men's side and the women's side. Whereas a generation ago, most of the elite players skipped their own teams. These days, you have talented players such as Caitlin Laws, Brett Gallant, and Jocelyn Peterman, who've all had great success as skips at the junior level, now spending the prime of their careers playing third or front end
1: yeah and and that's fair and uh you know Jeff did a facebook live last night and someone asked him if did he ever you know does he want to go off and skip his own team or or play a different position and you know from his perspective he he'd rather be a lead on on one of the top teams in the country as opposed to being the skip of the 10th best team in the country and i think a lot of people feel that way and i think you know that stigma where he always had to skip a team to be really recognized has gone away um you know everybody realizes now that on the top teams it takes a lead through skip like you have to be a really really good player to be on a top five team It's not a matter of hiding your weak player at at a lead or second position. that doesn't happen anymore and I think it's just kind of the evolution of the game where you know twenty years ago, yeah there was always one maybe even two weaker guys, but uh you know, the the game now with the five-rock rule, you have to be so, so good. You know, the other side of it, too, is is it's a bit cyclical, cyclical where, you know, there's a lot of teams out there similar age right now, and I think you're going to, you're starting to see it. Uh, and certainly, I think in the next trials, you will see it where you're going to see the Dunstone and the Botchers. And, you know, after that, you know, myself and Cooey and McEwen are starting to get a little bit older. You might see You know, some other guys, and I mentioned Brayden Calvert is is another young guy that you you can think of, and Tyler Tardy, uh, who you'll see break in. And, you know, you get all those guys in that same sort of, uh, you know, 20 to 26, 27 window in 10 years' time, to see those kind of, you know, funnel through. So it's a little bit cyclical in that nature, but I think the biggest part is people respect – leads in seconds a whole lot more than what they did when I first started playing and uh, you know it was always the weaker player played leader second that's not the case anymore because you know we look at our success this year and and when we've had really really good events it's when Jeff's been playing really good and setting us up because it makes Brett's shots easier and and it goes right on down the line you know if if you have a lead that's not putting the rocks in position it makes it really really hard And, and the same for the second stone and you know, one of the reasons, and, and by no means, they're all great players and they all had a great year, but if you look at J- Team Jacobs this year, um, you know, EJ was phenomenal this year in, in the way he played, and, and they have really done a year because of that. Now, it also helps that Ryan Herndon played really well and Mark Kennedy did, and so did Brad, but but EJ, you know, was, was certainly one area you can look at when you look at the stats in each one of the events that they played. He was always number one, and that obviously has an impact you know, throughout the lineup. So each position is super important. And I think we've gotten away from hiding your weaker players and, and that's going to continue. I think, uh, you know, on the women's side, I think you, you've seen that when, when Carrie formed her team a couple of years ago, you know, she really just went out and looked for good players and, you know, they happened to be skips or, or I think in all, in that case, they were all skips, but they all realized the same thing that we did that, being on a winning team is much better than skipping the 10th best team in the country. Uh, And they've formed an incredible team and, and, you know, arguably one of the best in in the country. So I think we're getting to that point and that's why you're going to see fewer and fewer teams in that smaller, in that top tier, I guess, because the top players are going to start to go together a little bit more. And, you know, from other teams as standpoints, as players who want to get better, you know it's tough to break into but it's, it's certainly doable and that's why you know going back to your other question about tier two you know i think that they can break into that it's just you know individually is, is maybe the better way to break into it as, than as a team if you go out and sh- show that you know you're a shooter and you can sweep and you can judge you could be a good team player you know those top teams are then going to open their eyes and, and maybe pull
0: you into that that smaller group of players I'm curious as to what you thought of all the lineup changes mid-cycle this season, Brad. That you don't typically get this big of a number of turnovers uh, two years into the cycle, especially not on elite teams like Cooey on the men's side and Holman on the women's side. Were you at all surprised by the changes on those teams and others? No,
1: I wasn't surprised. Now, with you know, I can't really speak to each one of the moves, but I what I can speak to because you know our teams have made moves mid cycle before and and I could speak to kind of the thought process behind what ours was and, and just let's assume that theirs was, was fairly similar. Really what it comes down to when you get to the to this point in the cycle, you really have to look forward and say, you know, as this team is constructed right now, can we be successful and win the trials? And in the most cases I think they probably could say, yeah, we could if everything went right. But you have to look at it from a perspective. You know what, if we went there and had our B game, are, are we going to give ourselves a chance? And if those teams in that situation say, you know what, probably not, I think that's when you want to look and say, you know what, if we make a change, will that change give us a better chance to win in, in two years' time? So that's kind of how we always looked at it when we made those changes mid-cycle. It just... we. You know, if everything goes right, yes, you can win, but you don't want to go into a, a big event like a Breyer or Scotties or, or in particular the trials thinking or knowing that you have to have all four of your players playing their best to, to have a chance. So I think in, in the situation this year with all the teams that shook up, they probably had that conversation where, you know what, we don't feel like our, our B game is going to be competitive. And if we're all not – playing our best we're we're not going to win and and that's when you try and, and make a change now you know when you look at the individual teams and, and with Koo and, and Holman and, and Chelsea Carey you know I can't speak to those individual ones because generally there's a whole lot more that happens behind and, and in the conversation sometimes it could be you know just the odd person out and, and really there's no reason for them to get cut Other they just needed to make a change uh, and then in other situations, it could be, you know, that uh, someone was performing poorly. It could be that there was some conflict behind the scenes. You just don't know. So I think the only thing I can talk to is just kind of you know the mindset that they would have uh, before making the change. And really, they're looking towards that 2021 trials and you know what can we be competitive if if we're you know a little off. And I think uh, they probably all had the same answer where. It was probably a no, and that's why they felt that they needed
0: to make that change. One of the challenges when you put a new lineup together is figuring out if the four members of a team will have chemistry. It's always easier to be on a team where you like the other players and where you have a, a chemistry, but it, it's hard to really gauge that if all you've ever done with a player before they join your team is to have a couple of beers with them at events on tour. Now, I'm guessing some sort of uh, test on team chemistry would help address this, but I'm not sure one of those really exists—at least not at the curling level yet. Through your experience, Brad, how do you go about identifying if a player is a good fit for your team from a personality and chemistry point of view ahead of time, or does it still come down to trial and error?
1: I, I'd love for that test to come out, and and I'd be the first one to to take part in it. But you know, I, I don't know if you can. And, and you mentioned about being able to spend time and having a beer and and getting along with a with a person that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have chemistry on the ice and you know you're really not going to know the chemistry of a team until you get in some of those pressure moments when you know you see how people react when when the heat is on and then does that really you know how does that correspond with how you relate and and you know i mentioned the point where it's easier to play with people you like i i think it's it's easier to play with people you respect. I think the respect is the bigger part as opposed to like. I think if, as long as you respect your teammates, I think you can be successful. And I've seen some teams that, you know, I wouldn't say that they were friends, but they certainly had a, a large amount of respect for each other when they went out on the ice. And they had a respect for them as, you know, as, as individuals. Uh, and then I've seen the other side where I've seen buddies, like four buddies go out and play. And when they get on the ice, it just doesn't work, you know, because I think you, you have, a different relationship that buddies where with buddies where you could probably you feel free to say a little bit more than you what you probably should say as a teammate and and say something that's probably going to have a negative impact on your teammate that uh, you know obviously is not going to benefit you playing well so sometimes a little bit of restraint is is a good thing and that's why I think uh, having that respect is a bigger thing as opposed to liking someone but Really, for me, it's been guess and check. You know, you, you, you put a team together looking at strengths and, and looking at personalities, thinking, okay, I think, you know, I got respect for them in, in this way. I like that person. I think they're a great sweeper and control the big weight. And you kind of mold this team together where you feel, okay, we've got a lot of strengths here. But until you get on on the ice and you play some events and, and likely play a full year, uh, you're not going to notice The weaknesses until until the year is done and and then you figure out can we overcome these weaknesses or are these surely personality issues and if they are just personality sometimes then it's just a matter of changing changing the player it may not have to do anything with scale it just could be you know we just need a little different personality maybe not as strong or maybe a stronger personality to come in and, and really round out the team so there's an almost an infinite number of variables when you make a team and put it together but you know for me uh having done it now for for almost 25 years it's just been guess and check you know you you, you bring someone in and, and you think they'll fit in and and you really don't know until they get in the situation and i think with the team that we formed here we really just got lucky i think we did all the work pre-work uh very well like we we talked a lot before we committed. You know, with in in Jeff and in Brett's case, you know we, you know Jeff came down here for for a few days to to practice with us, get to know us. We went out to dinner before any commitment was made. Brett, we brought in and he played an event before we made any commitment, so we got a bit of a feel. And and obviously, uh, you know Mark, I'd known for a long time, but you know we we were lucky that it all just came together and, and worked out for us. And uh, so I'm not I'm not surprised there's some shakeups, and and certainly I think. You know, every team is doing that guess and check because I don't think there's been a a test or a a real model that is 100% foolproof.
0: And finally, Brad, one of the things I've been trying to do in these special episodes during the quarantine is to ask my guests about their side hustles or when curling is a side hustle, I ask them about their main profession. In your case, I wanted to ask you about being a franchisee with Orange Theory Fitness.
1: Yeah, so I am a franchisee with Orange Theory Fitness. Uh, Myself and Mark Nichols are... uh, and uh, we have another partner, Andy Pratt, here in St. John's. Uh, so we currently have one studio open. We're in the process of opening a second studio. Uh, but I'm also partners with Mark Dacey and Matt Harris uh, with a couple studios in Halifax and, and hopefully another one opening uh, you know, in the not-too-distant future. So you know, all in all, when it's all said and done, I'll, I'll be partners in, in five of them. I, I love the business. Uh, you know I do the workouts. You know I, I I think it's it's just a great program and, and something I truly enjoy and you know I was in the food business for a while and and i I just felt that uh you know this aligned more with how I act and how I believe and and uh you know I just thought the whole product was something that I could personally embrace and and when you get behind something like that as a as an entrepreneur it makes it a whole lot easier to sell that and, and to to grow that business when you believe in it and And this is certainly something I certainly do believe in, and uh, you know we're excited to to get the second one open. But obviously, we got to get past (laughs) this whole situation we're in right now with with COVID nineteen. But uh, we are excited to to have that second one coming, and and,
0: uh, you know here in St. John. And that does it for another special episode of the From the Hack podcast. Keep your eyes on our Twitter and Facebook pages for updates on who our upcoming guests will be. In the meantime, stay safe, everyone, and don't forget to wash your hands. I'm Frank Rock, and this is From the Hack.